0: Our gracious God we thank you for revealing yourself to us through Jesus we thank you that especially at Easter time
1: uh, we hear of the incredible news of your love for us your great love in sending your son our Lord Jesus to take our place on the cross your great power in raising him from the dead thank you for the offer of new life that you make to all people through Jesus and thank you for giving us your word the Bible Uh, We pray as we hear it read and as Jeff speaks to us about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Please, Lord, give us the ability, not only the ability to understand, but hearts that are soft to you. Uh, Please soften our hearts before you. Help us to receive the grace and forgiveness and life that you freely give through Jesus. And we pray that in his name.
0: Amen. So today's passage is from 1 Corinthians 15 starting at verses 1 through to 11. <clears throat> now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not, even be des- or do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed.
1: Uh, okay, well, um, thank you uh, for your warm welcome before. Um, the other reason it occurred to me why I'm so delighted to be here today is because being a minister in a church means you can never miss Sundays, which means you never get away for long weekends. So for once, I'm actually in Victor Harbour on a long weekend, so yeah, added personal bonus there. Um, I'll ask you please to take out from inside that uh, wad of papers you're given this little insert. Um, it's, there's quite a lot of information on it. I've done that deliberately so that as I talk about a number of things this morning, you'll have something you can take away afterwards. Uh, particularly uh, to reflect on um, from this morning's uh, session. So you'll have that helpful to have that in front of you. Uh, Easter is, in many ways, the most significant event in the Christian calendar. Uh, On Friday, as Duncan has already alluded to, uh, we recognise that Jesus died. He died so that we might not need to. He took our sins so that our sins wouldn't be held against us. And this is the great claim about what it is that Jesus does. Of course, if that's all there is to the Easter story, then Jesus' death is no more than a valiant attempt to achieve something. And so for that reason, on Sunday, Christians remember that Jesus didn't just die in our place for our sins. He was raised to life to demonstrate that What he said he did was believable. And so over the course of Easter, we see both how who Jesus is uh, defines what he can actually do. Uh, For today then, uh, what I want us to do is to focus for a little while on one aspect of his resurrection from the dead. Uh, You can imagine, of course, if you're a visitor that what I've just said is so significant in Christians' eyes that there'd be much that you could say about his resurrection. Time forbids me from doing that. But I want to focus on just one aspect of his resurrection, which in many ways is the most crucial, and particularly if you're here as someone who's trying to work out who was this Jesus, what did he stand for, why does it make a difference, uh, this will be something that's of relevance and importance to you as well. And that's the question of did his resurrection actually take place? Is it fact as Christians believe, or is it merely fiction? Uh, At one level, what I'm going to talk about this morning is going to feel a little bit like a lecture, at least at the starting part, Uh, mostly because I want to cover a reasonable amount of material, uh, because it seems to me that oftentimes the debate in our society about did Jesus rise from the dead is not based on facts. So I figured it'd be useful for us to begin with that. Uh, But equally importantly, where I want to finish is by trying to show us how it makes a difference. If you're a Christian person, I trust that you'll go away today comforted, reassured once again that Jesus is who he says he was and that therefore he did what he claimed to do. But likewise, if you're here today as someone who's trying to work it all out, perhaps you'll go away encouraged and intrigued to check out a little more. Uh, If you have a look on your handout then, you'll see what I want to work through. And there's a series of questions that I'm going to try and answer or at least give you some starting points for. Firstly, did Jesus actually exist? Uh, Did Jesus actually exist? Uh, People often ask, is there evidence for Jesus as a real person apart from what you find in the Bible? And, uh, you know, to be fair, I think that's a reasonable question for people to ask. Um, But it's good for you to know that there is plenty of evidence in that regard. And if you have a look there on your handout, you'll see that I've given references there to three different historians and scholars from near Jesus' time who aren't Christian. Uh, Josephus, uh, who's a Jewish writer and scholar, uh, he speaks of a man named James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ. Uh, Tacitus, a Roman historian, writing uh, within the lifetime of Jesus' hearers, uh, writes of, um, you can see these talking about the Emperor Nero, he fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, that is crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And thirdly, you'll see a reference there to a fellow called Pliny, uh, the Roman, a Roman uh, governor around uh, at the start of the second, of the first century Uh, There he speaks of Christians. It was their habit on a fixed day to assemble before daylight and recite by turns a form of words to Christ as a God. Now, they're just snapshots of people who at the time who weren't Christian nevertheless acknowledging that Jesus was a real person. And I kind of just want to briefly deal with that because sometimes you hear people say, but Jesus never existed. I I just want to say I don't think that's actually a fair thing for anyone to say at all. There's too much evidence, both from within and without the church, that he was a real person. Okay, of course, most of what we know about Jesus comes from the Bible. And so, again, rightly, people often want to know how reliable is the Bible. And Let me say a couple of things about that. Uh, now, in what I'm about to say, I want to acknowledge I'm not a professional historian, uh, so if you are, no doubt we'll have a conversation afterwards about some of the things I'm going to say, but what I'm going to talk about is general, generally true and uh, accessible, I think, to most of us. Uh, when it comes to looking at the reliability of old documents, like the Bible, uh, you know, we don't actually have the original anymore, obviously, but when it comes to the reliability of old documents, historians usually use one of two tests in trying to establish if what we have today, the copies, are fair representations of the original. And you'll see the two tests there. Firstly, how soon after the events was something written about? That's the first test. Uh, So an event takes place, people start writing about it, how close in time were they is one way of measuring the reliability. It's not the only, but it's one way of measuring the reliability of a document. And I've given you just a couple of comparisons there, many of you will know of Alexander the Great, Uh, the um, famous general who was said to have conquered all the known world by the time he was 30 and wept because there were no more worlds left to overcome. Uh, He died, uh, we know, we understand, around the year 323 BC. Uh, But the first record of his death doesn't happen for many hundreds of years later, nearly 450, in fact. Uh, By comparison, uh, Jesus... Jesus of Nazareth, died in the year AD 30, and the first written records are appearing within 20 years of his death. Now, that again doesn't mean that the records are necessarily entirely true and believable, but it is one way of assessing, are they reliable records of what took place? And the second test that you'll see there, if the original is lost, which of course is the case, we don't have the original manuscript that was written by any of the Bible writers... But if the original was lost, uh, then how many copies do we have now and how close are they in time to the original? Again, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If you don't have the original document, then the copies that were made, are they very near in time and are there lots of them? Because if there are lots of them, you can check them against each other and if they all line up, that would at least give you more reason to believe that they're reliable. Uh, Again, I've given you a couple of comparison events uh, for documents of antiquity. Uh, Homer's great Greek poem, The Iliad. Uh, You'll see there that there's a number of copies, uh, hundreds of copies, Uh, although the gap in time between when they were originally written and the oldest copy we have now is quite significant, nearly 900 years. Uh, Another comparison, uh, Tacitus, who I mentioned earlier, a Roman historian who writes about the history of Rome, Uh, Well, he wrote a number of books describing Roman history. They were written uh, not only, uh, there are not only, sorry, there are not many copies and they are, again, not particularly close in time. Uh, By comparison, the New Testament, which of course is a compilation of a number of different books, but the New Testament, there are thousands of copies still around and they are in many ways very close in time to the original. Now, I understand particularly if you're someone who's not especially interested in history and the study of history that that kind of, sort of your eyes glaze over and you think, you know, what's, what's the point about all of all that? And I'm not going to spend any more time on that. You'll be relieved to know. Uh, but I do it just because, uh, yeah, as uh, someone who is a minister and who speaks to lots of people about Jesus and who he is, Uh, oftentimes I do hear people say the Bible can't be reliable. And I guess I just want to push back a bit on that and say that uh, I think often that's an assertion that's not founded on the evidence. And this is one way of trying to show that and outline that for you. Now, of course, I don't expect that you'll necessarily believe all of Jesus' claims, and certainly the big one that's been made today, that he rose from the dead, just because there's a lot of documents that are quite old. I understand that, and that's at one level pretty reasonable. But I do want to urge you, please don't just write off the Bible with the claim that it's unreliable. It's fair to say that no world-class or peer-approved historian or scholar would suggest this. Even if they don't believe it, They don't deny that it's reliable and that it's a reliable record of what took place. And I guess I'm trying to say that that means that if you hide behind the argument uh, that the Bible can't possibly be accurate, in many ways it feels like you're making a bigger leap of faith than a Christian who accepts the Bible's reliability. Uh, One of the questions that's often raised is, and I've listed there on the bottom of your page, isn't any record written by a believer, by a Christian, inherently unreliable because it not it biased? And that's probably an objection that you've heard of or perhaps even thought of. How is it that you can possibly believe a Christian when they write about Jesus' resurrection because they're going to have a vested interest in it? Well, what I'd like to suggest to you is that it might make it unreliable, but not necessarily so. Let me ask you, can you write a fair account about something that you believe in? This is gonna sound a bit provocative. Can a white person write about Australian settlement post 1788? Can an evolutionist write fairly about the history of the world? or to make it really personal, because this will affect all of us, can a footy fan report on the weekend's results even if their team lost? Well, of course you can. You might not, but you can, can't you? Uh, It means in the end, I think, that the question of bias is one that needs to be allowed for, but not just swallowed hook, line and sinker. Which really means the question becomes, how in the end can you tell if the Bible is biased or not? And uh, what I'd like to offer you today is the opportunity to decide for yourself. Uh, Duncan mentioned earlier that uh, there are copies of this little booklet called The Essential Jesus. This is for you to take away. It's just a copy of Luke's account of Jesus' life. Uh, It's part of the Bible, but rather than looking like a whole big Bible, which is too much to read. This one's just been extracted and looks much shorter uh, and much more reasonable. It takes about an hour to read this from cover to cover. Uh, This is written by someone who was there at the time, who interviewed a whole series of witnesses to then come up with the account that he has of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. He's a believer, no doubt. That's why he does it. But I'd like to invite you to work out for yourself if you think that he is biased in his telling of the story. And in the end, the only way you can do that is, as they say, to be the judge yourself. Take a copy. Have a read. It's only an hour of your life. That's about one TV show. And see inside what you find. Because the really interesting thing is that as Luke tells his account of Jesus' life you find a warts and all account that, to be honest, if I were writing a biased account of someone's life, I would have done a much better job. Because he refers to a whole series of things that, quite frankly, if I was trying to write the perfect airbrushed account of Jesus' life, I would have expunged them a long time ago. He talks about the disciples themselves who, as just one example, they are power-hungry, selfish, shallow, stupid, and cowardly. Not really the kind of thing you want recorded and enshrined in history for all of time. All of which I think in many ways has the echo of truth. Now, that's my opinion. But if you've never had the time, the opportunity to sit down and investigate for yourself, please do so. A bias, the question of bias, it can't be eliminated, I think, but it can be allowed for. Uh, And in the end... That's something that you'll need to work out for yourself. Okay, if you turn over the page, I'm going to move in a slightly different direction for the rest of our time. How do you explain the empty tomb? How do you explain the empty tomb? Uh, On Good Friday, we remember that Jesus was crucified and then buried in a a stone tomb uh, over which a large boulder has been placed and there's a guard outside, but three days later, uh, the disciples believe that he's been raised from the dead. Uh, I'm sure you can appreciate that this is the piece of evidence uh, that needs to be considered when it comes to claims about Jesus' resurrection. And if you think it was important today, it was even more important back then. You see, people were announcing Jesus' resurrection from the dead within days of it taking place. Which means that well, you know, if you and I had been alive at the time and someone came to us and said, hey, this guy called Jesus, they crucified him, but he's come back to life. Well, if we'd been alive in Jerusalem, what would you have done? You'd just go down to the tomb, have a look. If he's still in there, kind of undercuts the whole of this new claim pretty quickly, doesn't it? Uh, and so in many ways, an explanation for how the tomb comes to be empty those three days later is at the heart of a conviction that Jesus is alive. I want to mention to you uh, three different theories that have been developed over the years to explain how the tomb comes to be empty, which are different explanations to one that the Bible gives. That is, he's been raised to life again by God himself. Let me talk about each of them briefly, because you might have heard of them, and they're worth acknowledging because they do have popular currency, but I think they're also worth critiquing. Uh, Firstly, the swoon theory. The swoon theory. Now, this is actually a relatively new theory. It was only invented uh, in the 1800s, in the 19th century. Uh, It goes something like this, and uh, I'll, I'll try to be as fair and reasonable in my depiction of each of these theories as I can be. This theory is that Jesus didn't really die in the first place. Rather, he swooned or he fainted And so, uh, the way the theory goes, after being viciously flogged and beaten before being crucified, crucifixion in his case was hands and nails being hammered through his sorry nails being hammered through his hands and feet uh, of sufficient strength to hold him up, suspended long enough, uh, in all likelihood, to suffocate. Uh, the swoon theory then goes that actually he doesn't die at this point, rather he loses consciousness, he faints or he swoons a sufficiently well to deceive the Roman soldiers who have been charged with executing him, uh, who double-checked that he was dead before they took him down by shoving a spear through his side, uh, at which point a mixture of blood and water flows out. Uh, and at this point, I'm, again, I'm not a doctor, but I understand that blood and water flowing is a sign that the heart has stopped beating because uh, red blood cells and water and plasma separate at that point. They flow from his side. So they think that he's dead, but actually he's not. They think that he's dead. What they do is they take him down from the cross at this point and they carry him to the tomb, which is a little way away. Uh, All along, he continues to fake being dead. He doesn't stir once Uh, And they lay him in there and they put the stone over the front in the near-pitch-black darkness of the tomb, which in Palestine at this time of year reaches almost hypothermia-inducing cold overnight. At some point in the dark, he revives himself, ignores his near-fatal injuries, not quite fatal, but near-fatal injuries, uh, and then he uh, busts his way out of this tomb and overpowers the soldiers who are there before fleeing into the night. I said I want to be reasonable, I don't want to be facetious, but in many ways, I think it's kind of beyond belief that he wasn't actually dead. Um, and I think there's a reason why, to be really blunt, no one thought of this idea for nearly 1,800 years. There's one possible explanation. Second possible explanation, you might have heard this one. The Jews and all the Romans hid the body. Uh, the Jews who wanted Jesus dead, the Romans who carried out the execution... The theory goes the reason there's no body in the tomb is because they came sometime between Friday and Sunday, they stole the body away, uh, and the reason they did that was so that they could stop Jesus' disciples claiming that he'd been raised from the dead. Because, presumably, at that point, what you do if there's a bunch of Christians running around saying, Oh, Jesus was raised from the dead, well, you just say, Well, we've got the body. Kind of underm- undermines the whole thing. That's how this theory goes. Uh, and again, I suppose it's a reasonable theory apart from the fact that I wonder why they never did. Why did they never produce the body? Surely that would have been the quickest way to get rid of this new, growing Christian religion. Maybe they lost it, I suppose, or misfiled it somewhere, but I presume they didn't produce it because they didn't have it. And the third explanation that's often been given is that the reason Jesus' body isn't in the grave three days later is because the disciples took it. The disciples took it. And of course, this is the one that anyone, that appeals to anyone who likes a good Da Vinci code style conspiracy theory. You know, the disciples came along, they nicked the body, then they started saying Jesus is alive. Of course, no one can find the body to prove that he's dead because the disciples are the one who are hiding it. Amongst the many difficulties with this theory, I think, is the fact that Jesus' disciples were absolutely gutted by his death. They'd scattered, gone into hiding. seems pretty unlikely that somehow these ordinary ordinary Jewish men and women could have mounted an attack on armed guards in such a short amount of time and succeeded. And here's the point. uh, Not one of them ever recanting, not one of them ever admitting that in fact it was all just a hoax, just a cover-up. I think that's significant because uh, we know that 11 of the 12 of the first, apostles, first disciples were either murdered or executed for claiming that Jesus was alive. You know, I suppose it's possible that subsequent generations of Christians have been deceived, uh, but this theory says that those who were there at the beginning, uh, those who knew the truth, Those who worshipped a leader who preached an almost bloody-minded insistence on the truth, nevertheless, this theory says those ones were liars to the very end. Well, they're different theories, and I encourage you to explore them uh, because, as I said, this is the piece of evidence more than any else Uh, that points to what Christians believe is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so let me say something at point four before I try and draw some conclusions for us. Um, How did people at the time respond to the claim that Jesus was alive? Uh, If uh, today you're here and this is the first time you've heard of this claim that Christians have that Jesus was raised from the dead, if this is the first time you've heard about it, Uh, and you've observed how many billions of Christians there are in the world, uh, you'd probably be thinking that Jesus' initial followers were absolutely convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, how else does something get from there to this massive thing that it is today unless those who are there at the start are absolutely rock-solid adamant about what took place? that they would even give their lives for it. Well, you might find it ironic then that some of Jesus' closest and most fervent supporters took the most convincing of all. Uh, Perhaps, I suspect, that's because they'd given their life to following Jesus, they'd seen him crucified, they thought it was all over, and they didn't want their hearts to be broken again. Maybe that's why they were the ones who took the most convincing. A One that has uh, been uh, immortalised for his unbelief is someone whose uh, name is Thomas. Uh, Thomas, or as we call him, Doubting Thomas. Uh, he's, in many ways, the ultimate of sceptics. You know, the, That bloke says, look, unless I see it with my own eyes, I'm not going to believe it. I'm not gonna, you know, I don't trust anyone else except what I can be certain of for myself. Uh, when Jesus rises from the dead and appears to his disciples, it happens that Thomas is not there at the time. He comes back, he sees all, the, all his colleagues who say, we've seen Jesus who is alive, and he says, well, uh, here, John chapter 20, verse 25, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, put my hand in his side, I won't believe it. This is the kind of thing that you don't say unless you're absolutely convinced that Jesus is not going to just appear in the next moment, because it's going to be pretty awkward at that point, isn't it? Which, of course, is what takes place. Jesus does appear and invites him in a kind of ghoulish, macabre moment to stick his finger in and see if it's real. And, of course, at that point, Thomas is confronted and realises, no, this is as he has been told. Uh, Did you know that Thomas, uh, we understand... Thomas gives his life to proclaiming that Jesus is alive. He goes from Jerusalem to India where he's martyred for insisting that even though others don't necessarily believe it, he has seen it and he knows it to be true. He who was dead is now alive again. Uh, That's a disciple who took convincing. Even more profound, I think, is the effect on some of Jesus' enemies. Now, of course, not everyone who is against Jesus after his resurrection believes in him. In fact, many don't. Most don't, but some do. And in their testimony, we see some amazing stories. One of them is a fellow by the name of Saul. Saul from Tarsus. Uh, He is, uh, well, he has the ignoble um, I guess, label of being the first person, being present at the first death of a Christian. Uh, he's gathered with others uh, to try and stamp out this Christian revival that's taking place. These Christians who are claiming that Jesus has risen from the dead and in particular the Jewish authorities are not pleased at the time. Uh, and this is not being anti-Semitic in any way, this is just acknowledging what's taking place in this part of the world at this time. Uh, the Jewish leaders are very hostile uh, to these new Christians. And Saul is one of those who gathers at the death of the first Christian martyr, a fellow by the name of Stephen. He then takes over the Jews' efforts to stamp out the Christian faith. He tries to get rid of all the Christians in Jerusalem, and after he's done that, he asks for permission and letters of introduction to go to the other cities nearby and do the same there. And it's on his way... To Damascus on the now famously named Damascan Road, that he encounters the Jesus who was dead but is now alive. Uh, that passage that was read to us uh, by Thomas a few moments ago uh, from 1 Corinthians 15, you'll see I printed a verse there from the middle. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, this is Saul of Tarsus writing. He says, I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That's what he used to do. But having met Jesus, who was dead but is now alive, he stops killing Christians and he starts making Christians. He too eventually dies in prison for preaching about Jesus and much of the New Testament is written at his hand. His name changes to Paul, in case you're wondering. Okay, so there are a couple of ways in which people respond at the time who saw Jesus, who saw him alive, and there are stories that have been told for us. Well, point five then, so what? So what? Um, Whether or not you think Jesus rose from the dead, what's the big deal? Well, two implications that I've taken from Paul, from Saul of Tarsus. And I've written them down there for you. They're from the very next part of 1 Corinthians 15, which was read to us just a few minutes ago. Uh, two, just two implications for your consideration today. Firstly, verse 17 from 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Paul says, somewhat rhetorically, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Now, to be fair, Paul is addressing Christians at this point. But he also has something to say to those who are trying to work out who Jesus is. What I think he's saying to you, if you're here today as someone who's not a Christian, but particularly if you're here at the invitation of a Christian friend, maybe someone who keeps pestering you, invites you every Easter, every Christmas, they keep trying to get you along to courses, they keep trying to give you Bibles, all that kind of stuff if that's the reason why you're here today, perhaps to humour them, can I say to you that if you genuinely think that Jesus did not raise from the dead, um, then you owe it to your Christian friend to try and put them straight? Really. Convince them that their faith is futile and persuade them to stop throwing away their lives for a lie. Now That's called fundamentalism. What Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15 is he actually ups the ante. He says not just that your faith is futile, but he actually says you're still in your sins. Which means that, in fact, Christians who live by this incredible hope and conviction that our sins have been taken away by Jesus, we're deluded. And it means that we, like everyone else, on the day in which we stand before the Lord Jesus, will stand there in an even worse situation. We think that we're okay, but in fact we're not. And yet, the very heart of the Easter message is that what is claimed about Friday, that Jesus bears our sins so that we need not, that's validated by Sunday. In the claim that Jesus is who he says he is, he is the Son of God. And so the only other thing that I'd like to point out here is from verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul goes on to say, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, just to be clear there, where he says fallen asleep, that's just a euphemism Uh, for those who have died. But it's entirely apt and appropriate, I think. It's the right euphemism to use that of falling asleep for someone for whom Christ has already died. And I say that because for a Christian, if Jesus has died and been raised to life, If he is the first fruit of a harvest to come, then for a Christian, our death is no more than a falling asleep. It is no more than a power nap or an afternoon kip. That's the logic that Paul uses here. Christ who is dead has been raised alive. He is the first fruit of a great harvest that is still to come. And in that lies the hope for for every Christian person. Death is tragic. It touches all of our lives in different ways at different times, perhaps even in this week gone by for some of us. And it's right that we grieve at death. But for Christians, because Jesus was raised, we grieve, but not without hope. Because he is the first fruit of the great harvest, us, who is to come. Well, I'm going to pray for us in just a moment, but before I do, let me finish just with um, a final comment, which I've given at the bottom of the page there, point six, beyond any doubt or beyond reasonable doubt. Um, I'm well aware that for many of us, particularly given the magnitude of what is claimed about Jesus, before you believe, You think something like this, yes, that's all nice and well, but I want to have all my questions answered first. What I'm really looking for is no doubt before i believe, as opposed to what I've said here, reasonable doubt. At one level, that seems like a fair thing to say, uh, although I guess I just want to point out that that's not how we operate in most of our life. See, most of the decisions we make aren't based on an absence of doubt. We make them based on the fact that we're confident beyond any reasonable doubt. Uh, Let me give you some examples. Will the sun rise tomorrow? Well, beyond reasonable doubt, yes. Although, actually, if you stop and think about it, there will be a day when the sun won't rise anymore. Yes, it's so far away that it feels unreal and not relevant. But the decision we make now is based on any reasonable doubt. Uh, Will gravity do what you expect it to do when you're asked to stand in just a moment? Well, I, I don't know if you've gone through and done every possible measurement and calculation about the effect of gravity. I know I haven't. I'm just content to say, beyond reasonable doubt, yeah, I'll stand, and I won't keep accelerating till I hit the roof, and I'm okay with that. Uh, When it comes to Jesus' resurrection, I realize at one level we'd love there to be no doubt, but actually the way in which we make all of our decisions is beyond any reasonable doubt. And it's the standard that we use, of course, in our law courts to send someone to prison It's the right standard to use when trying to work out if someone has conquered the grave. Uh, Whatever you think about all this, and I'm sure you've heard this loud and clear today, uh, my plea with you uh, is to at least investigate the evidence for yourself a little more. Uh, Perhaps take one of those copies of Essential Jesus as you leave and have a read of it. But equally, you might have a series of questions that you've always wanted to know an answer to, and until now, you've thought the only way in which I could find that out is to Google it, With all that that brings, uh, can I encourage you? Have a chat with Duncan or with one of the leaders here at this church. uh, Perhaps come along to the course uh, that they're advertising as a way, at least, of perhaps finding out a little more evidence, a little more information, to be a little clearer about what you believe, actually, in either direction. Okay, I've used up my time. I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, I'll hand back to Duncan. Heavenly Father, thank you that in your kindness and mercy you have done what you promised you'd do and you've raised Jesus from the dead. Uh, We look forward to his return uh, and we pray that even now, as we anticipate that great day, uh, that you might continue to reassure us uh, of the things of which we are not certain. And if we don't yet know who he is, Father, in your mercy, uh, reveal your son to us in this week and year ahead. Amen.